Welcome to the Funny Because It's True podcast. I'm your host, Kevin McGeehan. The show is recorded live every other Tuesday at 10 p.m. at the Second City Hollywood in Los Angeles, California. Storytellers are either predetermined or chosen randomly on the night of the show to tell a true story based on different themes, and this podcast is a mixed bag of some of my favorites. The theme of this episode is miscellaneous, three completely random and unrelated stories. Marcus Koval discovers that hell hath no fury like a drunk woman scorned. Seth Whiteberg gets interviewed for Al Jazeera, and I come very close to screwing up my mother's birthday. But let's not dawdle. First up, Marcus Koval. So, um, I've never done this before, but I was in Kevin's class, and this happened two weeks ago, so I was kind of told to uh, tell the story, and um, I was late for class, and the reason I was late for class was the uh, night before we finished training, and kind of important to know, I, I, I train law enforcement, and I work a lot with uh, domestic violence victims, and so we had finished training, working out, and I went to... Um, to pick up this girl. She called me. She's like, ah, I'm down in Venice. Come hang out. And she's a gorgeous girl. Pretty girl. We hung out before. Any El Salvadorians in here? <laughs> Anyone dating an El Salvadorian? No? Okay. <clears throat> Good. So, um, <laughs> we pick her up. And I knew she was a little bit wild, but I'd never seen her drunk before. And uh, her friends, I should know when her friends say, have fun with that. And, uh, and then... Uh, <laughs> My friends were in my car with me, luckily, because I didn't realize that I potentially would need them as witnesses later on. <laughs> she jumps into the car over my friend, who has to kind of crawl back into the back seat. And um, my, co- my dog is in the car as well. And it starts off with her kind of throwing my dog back there as well and goes, get in the fucking back. And then when my friends got out, I was like, you know what, I, I don't even speak to my dog like that. So I appreciate, you know, if you wouldn't be like that. And I should have realized then when she started crying that everything, <laughs> everything wasn't there. Like, the, you know, the lights were on, but there was no one home when she was drunk. And so we get back to my place, and at this point, all I wanted to do is just pause out. Like, she's really drunk. And she wants. She wants to drink more. She wants me to get drunk. And it's 7 o'clock on a Sunday afternoon or evening, and I'm like, I'm not, I'm not going to drink. And it gets a little bit more aggressive. It's like, I, I want you to drink. I'm like, I'm not going to drink. And so she leg kicks me. Um, a low kick to my leg. And, and I'm like, <laughs> I said, you know, I said, you know, don't do that. She's like, what? But you're a fighter. You're, you know, that. I'm like, just because I fight doesn't mean it doesn't hurt to get kicked. And, <laughs> and I said, don't do it again because there's a good chance, like, by, by just by, by, you know, not even thinking about it, I'll probably uh, lift my leg and I'll block it and it will hurt you. So she looks at me and she goes, Boom, kicks me in the nuts. I go, like this. And I'm like, all right, I'm taking you home. <clears throat> so at first she's like, all right, take me home. I don't care, take me home. Take me to my car. I'm going to drive home myself. I'm like, no, I'll take you to your car. Get your house keys. I'm going to drive you home. So starting off in the car, it's like, yeah, 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 you know, I'm taking me to my car. I can drive. I'm like, no, I'm going to get your house keys. I'll take you home. To you motherfucker, you fucking cunt, you motherfucker, you will see. And then she starts hitting me. And she's and she can she she's been training too, so she's 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 hitting me pretty good. And I'm driving and trying to block the punches at the same time. And I pull over to the side and I'm like, I'm not joking. If you hit me one more time, I'm gonna throw you out of the car. To which she answers, "Fuck you, motherfucker!" And I start driving again. 
And just hit me, hit me, hit me. At one point, I'm almost crashing. And I've never been through school with a girl in my life. I grab her by the hair and I'm like, stop fucking hitting me. I'm going to crash. And we get to her car. I get the house keys. She's trying to drive home. I won't let her drive home. I get her house keys. Get back in the car. I'm like, don't hit me again. We start driving again. She hits me again. I pull over to the side of the road. And I'm like, that's it. Get out of my car. Get out of my car. I go over to the passenger side. I open the door. She's going, no, you motherfucker. Stop. No. <laughs> Loud enough for the people that live next door to hear it. A guy comes out and he goes, stop whatever you're doing. And I'm like, I'm not doing anything. I'm sorry, but she's drunk. I'm calling the police. I'm like, all right, call the police. We're in Santa Monica. Luckily, I trained Santa Monica police. So I know the guys. <laughs> Another neighbor hears the scream and he comes out as well. And I'm like, look. And at this point, I'm angry as well. And so he goes, well, you must have done something for her to scream like that. I'm like, why don't you try to fucking speak to her? <laughs> and he goes, whoa, 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 whoa. I called 911. Cops on the way. On the way, I, I don't want to get involved. And I'm like, he thinks I'm crazy. So I call one of my boys who works for SMPD. And I'm like... Um, you know what, I'm in a bit of a situation. I tell him very quickly, I'm like, is, are you working? Is anyone other guys that are not working? He goes, no one's working right now. Because I know what it's going to look like. The cops are going to come. They're going to realize that she's drunk. I'm sober. But at the same time, it doesn't look good when you come and there's a woman crying, right? I'm like, you know what? Um, he goes, there's going to be a lot of paperwork. It's going to take a lot of time. He goes, if I was you, I'd just, I'd just drive her home. So I'm like, all right, that's it. I'm getting back in the car. So, and the guy's like, stop. I've called 911. I'm like, fuck you at this point. You know, I'm, I'm, go- I'm leaving. <laughs> So I drive her home the whole way. She's sitting me. It, she probably hit me 30, 40 times during this whole time. And I'm sitting, leaning against the window. And then she goes, you hit me. I said, what? You hit me. I can't believe you hit me. I said, I hit you? She goes, yeah. I said, do you remember what I do for a living? I didn't bruises, marks on you at all? No, but you hit me. I said, I didn't hit you. I grabbed your hair to stop you from hitting me so that we wouldn't crash. And she's like, yeah, but you kind of hip-pulled me. I had my hair. I said, I don't really know how you do that. But at this point, I'm like, you know what? I'm a little bit worried because she's a gorgeous girl. And, and now I'm seeing this vicious side of her. So I call my boy who was with me in the car earlier. He's like, are you still with her? I'm like, yeah, I'm still with her. And all I, he can hear in the background is, stop talking on the phone, motherfucker. Dush. Stop talking on the phone. Dush. I'm like, can you hear that? He goes, yeah, I can hear that. I'm like, that's how hear me. I just want to witness. I'll speak to you later. Bye. I drop her off. As I go to drop her off, she goes, you think this is it? You'll see. I'm like, okay, whatever. I drop her off. About two hours later, I'm brushing my teeth. And I hear, <sighs> I'm like, is that the neighbor? <sighs> Neighbor's dog. I look at my dog because he normally reacts if someone is close by. I get a call in the morning from the guy that lives with me. And he goes, did you see your car? I'm like, no, not yet. Three out of four tires were flat stabbed with a knife and um, that cost me a thousand dollars and then I had to get a rental of course to drive up to the class (laughs) unfortunately the parking lot back here was full and so I had to park in the street unfortunately I didn't have any change in my rental so I had to get to the shop and get changed by the time I got back I had a ticket they say karma is a bitch and I met her that night (laughs) thank you (laughs) Next up, Seth Whiteberg. In October 2008, I got a phone call asking whether or not I would like to appear on the Al Jazeera News Network to discuss the presidential election. 
now, at the time, I was in Charlotte, North Carolina, doing a political sketch comedy show for the second city called Deface the Nation. So this phone call was exciting to me for a couple reasons. One, I had a lot to say about the presidential election. Um, it had been something I was uh, thinking about a lot, so that was cool. And two, how crazy is it to get a phone call from Al Jazeera? Um, if, you, if you don't remember, Al Jazeera is the network that became famous in the States because it was the Arabic language news network that would air Osama bin Laden's cave dispatches. Um, but by this point in time, they had an English language network, and, and that's what I would actually be appearing on because they wanted to discuss whether or not um, electing Barack Obama as president would be bad for comedians, um, which, which sounds a little crazy now, but at the time this was a, a, a legitimate topic because of how fucking great McCain and Palin were for comedians. <laughs> so I, I had first gotten really into politics and political comedy uh, in 2000 during the Bush-Gore election, and so I'd spent a lot of time thinking about satire and thinking about what it is that, that we did at the Second City. Um, and I loved this notion, this idea that we were essentially just expressing what could be incredibly scathing opinions, but wrapping them in this candy-coated shell that we call comedy so that people were willing to consume it. Um, and going on Al Jazeera in particular seemed really exciting to me because they were actually this network that was building this reputation for doing legitimate non-biased American political news. Um, so I felt excited because, I, 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 again, I felt like I had something to say to people that were willing to listen. So um, I get to the, the station the next morning, the studio. It's, a, it's, a, it's called Live Shot Carolina, and it's super early in the morning uh, because I was actually going on air with anchors who were in London. Uh, so the only people in the building are me, a cameraman, and a producer. And doing one of these live shots that you see on cable news and sports center and stuff all the time is a really bizarre, jarring experience. You're in this small, dark room with just a camera, a couple lights. Um, you're sitting on a chair with this pixelated backdrop of the Charlotte skyline behind you. Um, and the only way you can really hear what's going on on the air is uh, through this single little earpiece. So it's very easy to feel like you're just alone talking to yourself and not being broadcast to a hundred countries. Um, so we get on the air. It's a, I'm a little nervous just listening to them talk about um, geopolitical um, economies um, and other serious uh, topics that, that were on, on their minds that day. They finally come to me, and the first question they ask is, um, am I supporting John McCain for president because it will mean four years of great material? Um, so I go into my explanation about how flaw is the engine of satire and how Barack Obama is a human being, so of course he's flawed and comedians have been fine since forever. And then they ask me about uh, President George W. Bush and whether or not I'm sad that he's leaving office. And, and <laughs> you know, I explain that um, uh, how, how I believe that, that comedy is a great combatant to fear and that as a nation that we, we've always seemed to have some reason to be fearful. And so comedy has become this intrinsic part of our, of our national dialogue. And no, by the way, I'm not disappointed that George W. Bush is leaving office. And, and after a few minutes of this, I, could, I can just feel that this is not the conversation they want to be having. It just, for whatever reason, I'm, I'm, 
it, it doesn't seem like I'm giving them what they want. So uh, a few more minutes go by, and they, and they, they wrap it up, and that's it. Um, so I'm getting up and leaving and really not feeling great about the experience, but I really couldn't tell why. I'd never done anything like this in my life. Um, and as I'm walking out of the studio, um, I see uh, in the control room that they'd captured um, a screenshot of me on Al Jazeera. And it just uh, it was my face, and then it just said, Seth Whiteberg, comedian. And I immediately realized, like, of course they weren't bringing me on to, to like, wax philosophical <laughs> about the nature of American political discourse. Like, they just wanted me to be funny. Um, and it seems so obvious now, and maybe to all of you while I'm telling this story, uh, <laughs> but at the time, it, the thought never even crossed my mind because it's fucking Al Jazeera. <laughs> the, the, the idea that they suddenly are like, let's have some light, fluffy... You know, political comedy, it, it, never, it never even crossed my mind. So I'm sitting there for six minutes explaining the theory behind why Barack Obama would be very funny in the future while very firmly demonstrating how unfunny he was in the present. You know, I, I, I had um, gotten so excited about the message that I'd forgotten the medium. I, I'd forgotten to rap what I was thinking in that candy-coated shell. I, I forgot to make the discourse, enjoyable. But I will say that I feel firmly confident beyond the shadow of a doubt that I was still a hell of a lot funnier than Osama bin Laden. Thank you. And finally, me, Kevin McGeehan. In early 2006, my mother, Patty, and I were walking around Target, and we went to the stationary aisle, and we walked by fountain pens, and she looked at the fountain pen and started to uh, wax nostalgic as she grabbed it and said, you know, I love fountain pens, the way the ink takes to the paper. And I used to buy fountain pens a lot. And the last one I ever bought was when I was pregnant with you. And she told me that nice story. And I said, well, why don't you get it now? And she said, no, I don't need it. It's an extravagance. I don't need it. I just wanted to tell you that. And then put it back on the shelf. And I made a mental note of that moment. Now, a couple of weeks later, Patty and I celebrated her 62nd birthday, which was what we knew beyond a shadow of a doubt to be her last birthday. At this point, she had been diagnosed as terminal, and she'd asked me to come home to help her. So for uh, five months, I lived with her in her final five months. And one of the things that come along with that are a lot of final things, one of them being her final birthday, which meant there's a lot of pressure on the primary gift giver for a final birthday. And I didn't know what to do. And I thought about it, and I, I, I don't know what to do. What, what's going to be something significant? This is not a kerchief birthday. This is something that has to have something on to it. So I drove around one day, one Saturday. I was uh, just trying to go to different stores and try to figure out what it was, and then I stumbled upon this one store, and I looked at it, and I thought, yeah, there's probably something in here. So I sat in my car, I got really stoned, and I went into a Michael's Craft store. <laughs> and I discovered scrapbooking. Oh, this world was opened up to me of construction paper and books and double-sided tape. Don't buy cheap double-sided tape. It doesn't work. Actually, get the good kind. That's just from me to you. 
So I knew this is what I was going to do. I had boxes of pictures in my room that I've been going through that I knew I could make this great scrapbook because I am thematically right there and I can really put together something awesome. I mean, the things you can do when you set forth your imagination and, oh. um, uh, So what I did and what I came up with was I am going to go through each decade of our lives together and have pictures that represent each one and this is going to be fantastic. So I did it. And um, just as a little side note, I would sit in my room late at night so she wouldn't see me doing this, going through all these old pictures, just taking shots in the gut of just emotionality as I am just... <laughs> Until I completed something that was absolutely, in my opinion, just fantastic and what was necessary for this birthday. So the birthday arrives, and I'm very excited. And the thing that I did was I set up a big scavenger hunt for her, a treasure hunt that she had to go find all these different clues that were going to eventually lead her to this scrapbook. And the scrapbook became the primary thing that I was thinking about as her present. And she went through this treasure hunt. We're just laughing at the fact that she cannot decipher any clue to save her life. But I have to help her through each one, and we're having a great time. And then she finds the scrapbook, and then she just loves it. We share a nice moment as she goes through, and each of us has a very nice, nice little cry with it, and we laugh. And then we go to later go to dinner at a place called the Sundog Diner, which was her favorite diner to go to. And then afterwards, we were going to go see a guy named David Liss, who writes historical fiction, speak about his latest book, A Conspiracy of Paper. And I could not have cared less. <laughs> right as we're about to walk into the bookstore, I get a phone call from a very good friend of mine who also coincidentally has her birthday. And I say to her, oh my gosh, I've got to talk to him right now. Um, You go on ahead without me. Save me a seat. I'll be right in. So I stand outside and I start talking to my friend Matt. And Matt informs me that as of right now, I am in a bubble. I'm in a bubble with just my mother where she and I are living together in this thing as we uh, wait for the inevitable. But there's an outside world happening around me, and Matt informed me of some things that were happening, and one of them was a job that I had wanted, a job that I had campaigned for, a job that I now had to give up because I came home. He told me they were still holding a spot for me, and I had it for another month if I needed it. And I had to admit that day that, no, I'm here. I can't. That job's out of the realm of possibility for me. I have to stay here with her. And it just got me that it, I just realized that, oh, man, this sucks what I'm doing right now. I've given up everything that I love, and I am here right now, and I'm in this strange catch-22 because as she and I would joke as we would cope, um, we would joke that I was sitting in a waiting room where the only way that I could leave to go back to my life was if the most horrific thing that could happen happened. But... I didn't want that to happen, so therefore I wanted to stay as long as I possibly could. So I was on this strange Mobius strip of emotions. And I talked to him more, and I got sadder and sadder as I started telling him, like, yeah, I'm breaking down right now. And I gave him a full confession. And then I realized that, oh, God, 25 minutes have passed. And then she walks out of the bookstore, and she tells me that, oh, my God, are you okay? Uh, I had saved the seat. Many people were trying to get the seat, and I... I told them proudly, no, my son is coming in here, but you never showed. And then I told her about the conversation that I had, and 
in the bit of failure, in a birthday that was so important, I broke down and I started talking about me and my feelings. And that became our topic of conversation on the ride home of just how I was stuck in this waiting room. And then I wanted my life back. And then she led into how she wanted her life back. And it became this whole conversation in the car just full of emotion. And I couldn't believe that, great, this is how I have made her birthday go is talking about this. We get back to the house. And we're both kind of upset. But we worked through it. And we've kind of laughed and chuckled and tried to figure out a way to just get past this. And then I went in my room and... I forgot that I had not given her one of the presents that I had bought, and I had completely forgotten about it. And I walked out to her, and I said, I have one more thing for you, and I gave it to her. And she opened it up, and it was the fountain pen that she had talked about earlier. And she just broke down and started to cry and said, Oh, Kevin, you listened to me, and you heard what I said. Thank you so much. And I looked at her, and... It just felt better knowing that even though I had made the most kick-ass scrapbook in the world, <laughs> that in this instant, the pen was mightier than the scrapbook. Thank you very much. That's it. That's our show. Special thanks to our storytellers Marcus Koval and Seth Whiteberg. Also thanks to Josh Callahan, Mark Orzeka, The Second City Hollywood, and the Comedy Podcast Network for producing the show. You can like Funny Because It's True on Facebook to find out upcoming show dates and themes. All the past episodes are available for free download on the Comedy Podcast Network and iTunes. While on iTunes, feel free to leave a comment or a rating about the show. Now keep in mind, I understand the pain in the acidness of this request, but the more comments and ratings help the show grow to a broader audience on iTunes, and it also appeases my staunch desire for approval and acceptance. If you would ever like to see the live show, Funny Because It's True is every other Tuesday at 10 p.m. at the Second City Hollywood, located on beautiful and yucky Hollywood Boulevard. So come out, put your name in contention, and maybe you'll get chosen to tell a true story on stage, and from there, get chosen to be on the podcast. My name is Kevin McGeehan. Thanks for listening. Receive this transmission from the Comedy Podcast Network. For more shows, visit comedypodcastnetwork.com.